This conversation was a real treat for me. Nick Beta, CEO of Gainsight, and I worked together for six years, building the company from 1 million to 85 million in ARR while I was there. One repeat topic in our exec team and board meetings was, how large is our market and how fast is it growing? While it's standard to have back of the envelope math on your market size in your seed or series A pitch deck, the reality is that market sizing is much more complex than that when you're actually scaling your business. And knowing the size and growth rate of your market is critical to sustaining high growth rates for your company. In this conversation, Nick and I discussed what is a more granular version of market sizing that you should be doing? How can you track whether customers are truly ready to buy, i.e. are in market? And what are the best practices for growing fast when you're at 10 million, 50 million, and 100 million of ARR? You can listen to the podcast or else read the lightly edited transcript of the conversation. Let's dive in. Nick, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about growth endurance, which is a topic on every founder's mind right now. So thank you so much for joining. I don't think I've been more excited for podcasts in forever. So I'm so honored to be here, Allison. Thank you. <laughs> for folks' context, Nick and I worked together for six years, growing Gainsight. I was super excited to have an excuse to bring him back into a recorded conversation, which we did many of while we were working together. So this is going to be a lot of fun for me too. Allison's super humble. She's one of the most important people in the history of Gainsight. So I am so grateful to continue having a relationship with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So as further context for this and, and for the audience's sake as well, there are not that many SaaS companies that have reached 100 million in ARR. It's really interesting when you chat with founders, there are many of them that have raised money at sky high valuations. There are many more unicorns than there used to be. But you'll also know that, you know, many of them have only small amounts of revenue. And I was talking to a founder in Boston the other day who reached 30 million in ARR. He said he didn't know a single CEO who had ran a company that was larger than his. Huh. There are other companies that are in that those middle stages who raised money and that their valuations presume that they're going to continue to grow at sky high rates, rocket past 100 million in ARR. So I think this is a big problem slash opportunity for a lot of startups. And Gainsight is one of those companies that has surpassed 100 million in ARR, continues to grow well. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Love it. Yeah, I think they call, I don't know if you saw, they call them centaurs. Did you hear that new term? That's, uh, I don't know who made that up. Absolutely. Yes. And actually, Mary D'Onofrio from Bessemer Venture Partners was a guest as part of this series. And she coined the term growth endurance. And we talked all about, yeah, the differences between centaurs and unicorns. So, you know, unicorn being obviously like the $1 billion valuation mark, centaur being the 100 million ARR mark. And it, it is very interesting how there are a lot of unicorns out there, but not many centaurs. So, you know, Nick, just to start out, like, why do you think there aren't that many companies that have reached 100 million in ARR? There's probably two different elements to that. One is probably time. Of course, SaaS is not that old and, you know, it takes a while. Not Some companies get to 100 million very quickly, but most of them, it takes a while, including Gainsight, right? And so some of it is we've not had the cornucopia of SaaS companies largely were launched probably in the last five, seven years, right? So many of them will get there over time. Probably some of you listening will get there, which is cool. I think the other two things I'd, or the other thing I'd add in, which is probably all related is this growth endurance problem, right? Which is, you know, it's like, um, you know, I, you're like, I got from 1 million to 3 million of AR uh, in a year. That's like amazing. Like, that's so awesome. Will you triple again next year? Will you triple again the year after? You hope you do. Statistics say not always, right? 
And so I think, and then the growth endurance problem ties to something that's even more fundamental, which is, you know, there's always, there's markets for different stuff, right? Products. And I think especially in the world of the amount of funding that happened in the last five years, the markets kind of got carved up. I'm sure you saw this of like, like, you know, seven, eight years ago, like somebody's going after some super horizontal, huge problem. And then now it's like, I'm doing this very specific niche thing, which could be a great business, but you might be a little more TAM limited. And we'll probably talk about that of like, if you're TAM limited, what do you do about that? Yeah, we've been through that for sure. As you said, market size is really important. The rate of growth of your market is important. How do you know if your market is large and growing? We've all done the back of the envelope analysis, but like, how do you really know? As you know, you right there, we went through this so much at Gainsight. I thought a lot about this topic. And I think there's two different things, large and growing. So let, let me break them two separate because I think they're different. Gainsight's market was not large, but luckily it's been growing. So we had like one, but not the other. So on the large side, I think one of the things that, you know, there's this classic like assumption in business planning that is not right most of the time, which is you build a spreadsheet. And I'm sure you've seen these. You've made, you've made the first version for Gainsight where it's like, okay, you put this many reps in and you put this much ramp time and quota and out comes a bookings assumption, right? So if we did 3 million a day of new bookings this year, we're going to do six next year by doubling the sales team. And you double the marketing spend and whatever, right? But actually what ends up happening practically is lots of times you, you hire all those reps and they're not that productive, right? And so what's happening under the covers? I've thought a lot about that. I think in an existing market, one of the challenges is um, there is, a, let's say there's a thousand companies in a market, like in a town, right? Just for simple math. Not all thousand of those are in market at any given point, right? That's like TAM versus say, some people have heard service, serv- serviceable, addressable market, right? How many are in market this year? And by the way, those ones that are in market, you know, not going to win all of those. And, and so what ends up happening is there's a certain number of new logos you can do in a market in a given year, right? Like a certain number of logos. And what, what's interesting, what I find fascinating is that, um, some markets like, all of a sudden, everyone needs the new thing, right? Like I think data warehousing might be a good example of that with Snowflake or whatever, right? Most markets though, it's kind of more like a steady march, right? Like the every year, there's a few more people that need customer success software or whatever else is out there. And so when I, one of our early investors, as you remember, Jeff Lieberman from Insight, he was telling me and he said, most of the companies they invest in, the new logos per year kind of flatten out for a given product. And that means the bookings for that product eventually flatten out. You can you can get around that with maybe higher prices or selling bigger customers, but eventually that flattens out. And so then then we're going to talk more about it. But then to keep growth going, you you know you either have to like sell to bigger customers and get higher ASP, or you're kind of adding in new products or new markets or whatever, right? But um, basically, the number of buyers that are ready to buy in a given year in a market in a fixed market it kind of flattens out. And so there's some markets where all of a sudden everyone's buying, but most of them, it's, I don't think it's like that, you know? And, and I, you and I had that experience where you find those customers that are like, they're like, I'm just not ready. And, you know, you can do everything you want. You can like fly to see them and send them a bottle of wine. You can build an ROI model. Sometimes they're just not ready, you know? And actually, I don't know if you like felt the same way, but I felt like sometimes those customers that you somehow convinced that aren't ready, but you convince them to buy. They're just terrible from a customer success perspective. You you owned that way back when, right? So number of in-market buyers is the much more pithy answer to your question, I think. I think that's such a great point. And maybe points to the fact that when people think about their market, they should just think about the attributes of accounts that I'm going to include in my list totals up to the market. It's You almost need to get into 
the qualification stage to understand what size your market actually has. I mean, I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but have you ever seen a company size their market based on SQLs or some real signal of readiness? Yeah, totally. It's interesting because we went and end up sort of accidentally doing this where, you know, we have this like, okay, all the companies that could have ever buy Gainside and you you can make that number look as big as you want to for an investor pitch. Right? I'm sure you've seen some crazy ones in the slides of invest- companies, right? So you can make that look like a billion or 10 billion or whatever you want. But then, then one of the things that we did was like, let's look at all those companies. What percentage have, if you think about a funnel, what percentage have ever even interacted with Gainsight? Like what percentage have ever been to our website? What percentage have ever had an SQL sales qualified lead, right? Like, so you can kind of then carve in and start triangulating to in-market buyers. Now, one of the things I found, like having talked to a lot of CEOs, is I think the very early days of a new business, you have so low awareness that like your number of logos will grow. It's going to grow year over year. Um, so, you know, let's say, let's say the first year you do a hundred logos and then the second year you do 200 logos, right? That's awesome. And the third year you do 300 or 400. And then at some point it's going to start flattening out. And that's, I think that that's like a big thing is when that starts flattening out, you know, the natural instinct is, oh gosh, we're just not executing well in sales enough, or we need a new sales leader, a new marketing leader. Again, you've seen all this against life. And so sometimes that's true, but often what's happening is you have hit the efficient frontier of new logo acquisition per year for that subset of the market. And now you're like, either go get more TAM or go enterprise or get a new product or whatever. Right. And so there's, I think there's this natural flattening of logos, which is the early indicator that you've sort of hit the efficient frontier of your first bowling pin, I guess. I'll give a couple examples of companies I've spoken with recently that were keenly aware of the fact that this readiness element factors into their market size. I think it's such a good point that you're raising. One was actually a company I just spoke with maybe an hour or two ago. So good coincidence, although probably a signal that this isn't a coincidence that everyone should be thinking about it. But in their case, they're looking for companies that are about to launch a product into a new industry vertical where there is significant regulation. They can help you basically test out that product, launch it without having to get HIPAA compliance or, you know, some other regulatory approval, which is huge, right? If you're trying to like innovate in a new area without a super high upfront cost. And so they're trying to figure out who are those companies that are launching products into these new markets. So that's kind of like their readiness factor. And then, you know, there are other companies where it's required that their customers have bought another software product and implemented it fully and they're using it before they are ready to buy this particular predecessor product. Are there any other types of readiness factors? Oh yeah, so many. This is such a good conversation because making this actionable, one of the things that like, you know, natural question that I'm sure you ask yourself and I ask myself all the time, what do I wish we'd done sooner, right? And so one of the things that I think ties to this readiness is building a super custom a, a TAM database that's not just like, oh, I pulled a list from Zoom Info or LinkedIn or which are all great data sources, but then it's like, okay, you build a list of all these companies. What are all the things and attributes and signs that mean that they're more ready? So like, look, we'll use Gainsight as an example that you and I both know well, right? So we both know there's probably a certain number of CSMs you need to have, right? There's a, a certain size of your subscription business you need to have, but also you probably need to have a certain maturity of how you're using CRM or Salesforce. You, our customers, a lot of them use Snowflake. So they maybe they have to do Snowflake first. Like there's also an IT prioritization, which is probably that other company where you kind of, some, sometimes you do something first and then something second, something third. So for example, Gainsight, very often people like, 
implement or update Salesforce and then they buy Gainsight, right? And it's impossible. Like we tried many years. We're like, why don't you do Gainsight first? They're like, no, we're not doing Gainsight first. And so uh, one of the things I wish we'd done was a very custom TAM where you start with all the companies, you build all these attributes, you know, how many CSMs, are they CSM team growing? And we start, we've done that. And then like, be willing to even throw people at it. Like if you, if you use some crowdsource service or whatever, I think there's like nothing more valuable from an IP perspective than knowing every single potential buyer in your market and where they are in the maturity process. Even if you have to survey them and ask them, like, are you in market for software? Like that stuff is gold from my perspective. It makes a ton of sense. And I think also points to the idea that you're never really done sizing your market. Actually, it should be like a continuous exercise because the whole point of readiness is that it happens in a moment in time and you want to be right there and ideally maybe be there like a month before it happens so that you're first in the game. There's another company that I work with called Swan Tide and we'll be publishing something on the Substack soon about them as well. They come in really handy when you're migrating your CRM from HubSpot to Salesforce. And usually that comes after you hire a VP of sales. So really, like you need to be tracking on LinkedIn, like the new VPs of sales that are showing up at smaller companies. Well, it's funny because as you remember, like that was a huge, it is a huge thing for Gainsight is new heads of CS, right? And so we have this like very elaborate process and we're, I'm maniacal about it. And we track them all and then they get, you know, there's a welcome basket we send them. And, and it's such an, I think the new executives for many software products are a trigger for change. I think in general, one thing to think about is like companies don't want to change. Like they don't want to change. So if they want to buy your product, it's because they have to change. Why do they have to change? Well, maybe they have a new executive. Maybe they just bought a company. Maybe they took private equity funding. Those triggers to me are a big way to think about who's in market for your product. I love that. So while we're on the subject of market size, we are also going to talk about market growth. Markets might have, you know, growth rates that are indicated in market research reports. And it might just seem like there's this annual caper, but I think we all know that markets don't behave linearly or even like have like a fixed rate of growth that causes them to grow on an exponential curve. It's bumpy. Like there might be some years where the market expands dramatically, other years when the market is flat, other years when it contracts, as we saw for a number of markets during the pandemic. How do you think about continue to grow your company at a predictable rate when your market may not be growing that way? So I think there's two parts of that. One is understanding how the market's growing. And then like, so you have to know what what's happening in your market, which I'll talk about a little bit. And then there's like, what do you do when it's slowed down? So we totally have lived that. I feel like this whole conversation is therapy, by the way. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I've written about many times gains I grew like really fast in the early days when there, you know, when we were just like it's, it was a small market, but it's easy to grow in small numbers. And then we slowed down a lot because like we just had saturated the market. There weren't enough companies. And then as Allison has heard, we the last three, four years really re-accelerated, which has been really great. And so that's awesome. Um, but what happened? And so one of the things we've looked at is what are those leading indicators of the market growth? Now, in our world, it's pretty simple. CSM hiring is a pretty good leading indicator, right? So we we look at how many CSM customer success managers are out there in the world and how that's growing year over year. Also, new new SaaS company formation, which has been certainly a boom the last few years, is another leading indicator. And so one of the things that we've been able to do is not as real time as I want, but at least a little bit is like, okay, we saw things were really picking up a few years ago. And then we were able to start ramping up again and sales and marketing and so on. So I think that's like part A is, okay, how do you know like when it's slowing down or speeding up? Part B is then, okay, if it's slowing down, what do you do about it? And I think there's there's 
two things you can do. Like one is very practical right now. I actually wrote about this yesterday. Like a part of a market and sales and marketing customer success is that you have a value proposition, right? Like obviously, right? You have a value proposition for your product. It does X, Y, and Z. That value proposition can be tweaked. And so I would encourage 100% of companies to look at your value proposition and look at what companies value right now and make sure what your value proposition is, is what people value. So let's use Gainsight as an example. So in boom times, you know, what does Gainsight do? Well, we're going to help you scale faster and expand your customers more and grow faster and all these very aspirational things. But today... We're, um, you probably frozen your budgets and you're, but you're growing and you can't throw people anymore. So we're going to help you automate more in customer success, digital customer success. We're going to help you find more risk. We're going to help you be more predictable, plan better, right? Not necessarily as aspirational. And so one thing I think you can do is tweak your value proposition for where the market is now, right? That might mean product, but mostly it means like messaging and customer success. So that's one thing. Second thing, of course, though, is you can also use the new market to find new opportunities. So in that world for us, digital customer success is so hot because like nobody wants to hire and they still have to like serve their customers. And so everything we're doing is like, how do we keep doing more in digital customer success? We bought a community software company, as, as you know very well, and doing more with our in-product stuff. And we're looking at other acquisitions and new products all around digital. So you sort of like, what is hot right now? So I think that big part of being a founder, CEO, whatever is like having a really good sense of what is hot right now and being willing to change that because the world changes. That's a really provocative point. I think particularly because so many founders, particularly in the early stages, like when they're starting out, I think they're so passionate about the space they're building in. And, you know, they've probably experienced a pain point themselves or they've otherwise been very close to a pain point. They really want to solve this particular thing. And then, you know, they might start to go to market and be disappointed by the reactions that they're getting. So do you tell that person, like, be opportunistic, be in the moment, market to what's hot right now? Or do you tell them, keep plugging because eventually someone will discover why you're so brilliant and why your product makes sense? It's short-term versus long-term. Long-term, your vision is still going to happen because the economy will come back and there'll be another cycle. There'll be another boom. There'll be another bust. It, you will like Gainsight made it because we just didn't give up and too stubborn or whatever. <laughs> uh, right? um, but then short term, adjust the message to the moment for sure. So let's use, let's use a different example, HR tech, because that's very understandable. Everyone understands HR tech, right? So, you know, a year ago, like there's probably tons of HR tech companies who are like, we're going to help you hire more people and retain your top talent and blah, 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 like improve your culture. All those things are great, really important. Very bad messages right now, right? Like very, very like, like it almost feels if you send an email about accelerate your hiring process, it'd be like, are you guys not paying attention? But are there other things? Like, for example, you know, you probably need to do a better job assessing, you know, who's really performing versus not, or you're trying to move to more like lower cost hiring approaches. And so you need to do more hiring at scale, but in lower cost regions, there's always something you could do to tweak the message from my perspective, right? And it's just about getting really creative and really knowing what people want right now. And and one thing I always feel like is when you're doing anything from product management to sales to customer success or marketing, a big kind of conceptual thought process is what's on the whiteboard of that customer right now. When I say whiteboard, I mean, whether it's a physical whiteboard or their to-do list, what do they have on their list that's independent of you? So right now on 100% of companies' lists is something like get more efficient, save money, get to rule of 40, get more scalable, reduce burn, right? That's on everyone's list. So how do you get relevant to something that's on people's list? 
because they're not going to put you on their list. They're going to want to see how you fit into something that's on their list, right? And so what's on your buyer's whiteboard right now? That's that's something I think about a lot. I love to double down on this theme of what is in your control. Since the growth curve of your market doesn't seem in your control, your choice of market might be, but you know, once you're in it, it's- Once you're in it, you're in it. It's outside of you, right? So thinking about the best way to run your company when you're at different stages. And and you've traversed many of them. We've traversed many of them together. If you had one tip to give to a founder who's running a $10 million ARR company, another founder is running a $50 million ARR company, a third founder is running a like $100 million ARR company, what would you say is a tip for each stage? What changes along the way? Yeah, and, and we're talking about specifically around growth endurance or more generally? Yeah, exactly. If you kind of said 10, 50, and 100, and I think that, by the way, like, the numbers might change for different companies because some companies, like some businesses are like unabated growth to like a billion with like one product and one market. Like, you know, you think of like the old days, something like Microsoft Office or right, like it's like, yeah, everyone needs it. And it's like got to like huge numbers. Right. But most companies, I feel like you do hit some step functions and some pain at 10, you know, 50, 100. I think like at that 10, um, you know, if you kind of use the Jeffrey Moore who wrote Crossing the Chasm, famous business book for people that aren't aware you know, you definitely cross the early adopter to like a little bit more mainstream. And so you have this thing of they don't, they're not just buying because they want to be part of the future and innovation, right? You're in those early days of gains, like those early customers versus later on when they're like, there has to be a real value proposition. And like, there's has to fit with my priorities. And I'm, you know, it's probably less about being an innovator, more about just like, like maybe a little bit of FOMO or doing it because everyone else is doing it. Right. And so what that means practically is your, I think your sales process itself shifts from an evangelical sales process. And like, let me show you the product and demo to a little bit more of a value-based sales process, right? That might, might be where you start doing like, ROI models of like the value value of buying your software um, might be more case studies of why other people are doing it more social proof versus the early days is like that customer wants to be like the speaker on your podcast or the speaker at your conference, right? Like, you know, the difference totally, right? So I think there's this shift of the evangelical sale to the like value-based sale that happens maybe around 10 million, right? That's, I think that's something that is legitimate. Then at 50 or some, some point 30, 50, whatever, I think there's a different like like thing that we went through and probably multiple people do, which is um, you you definitely are starting to push the efficient frontier of like how many new logos a year for mo- in most companies you're you're hitting, and so I think that's where you start like really looking at the marginal efficiency of sales and marketing, uh, particularly in this new world, and you probably start saying, okay, like are we really getting more growth from the extra dollars we're putting in. We definitely stopped getting more growth from the extra dollars we put in right around that time. Maybe it's 30 or 40 or 50. Right around that time was like, oh, wow, we're hiring more salespeople, spending more marketing. You you remember all those new people showing up and nothing changed. Like the sales per quarter were the exact same, right? And so then you, I think you have to get a lot, you, you have to have a really good CFO and you're really, really thoughtful about the ROI of your spending, I think. And then I think then what you do, and hopefully you do it early enough that you don't get stuck, we did a little later than probably I, we should have, is then you start saying, okay, what is our second act? I think, I forget who came up with that term. Maybe it was BCG or McKinsey or something. Somebody had that, a, a paper a long time ago about software and second act, right? And actually what's interesting is in that original example, I think the example was actually like Microsoft Office and then something else. And, and the idea was they got to a billion of revenue and they had to do their next thing. I think the second act comes sooner in sales because there've been so many companies that you're like, oh, actually I'm 30, 40 million. I got to start thinking about my second product 
And I, I think like to me, second act in SAS, the good news is it's pretty straightforward. It's either um, you're finding a way, you've been more SMB mid-market and you're finding a way to do more big enterprise deals, right? And that's clearly a big growth accelerant. A lot of companies, that's how they keep it going from like 30, 40, 50 to 100 is you're not necessarily doing more no- logos, but you're doing bigger deals, you know? And that's obviously like somehow you're convincing bigger companies to use your software. You saw the the fits and starts we had around that where we thought we, you know, we got a really big customer early on, like early, early. And then we just didn't get any other big customers for a long, long time. But then eventually we did. And then we started, you know, that's how some of the reacceleration happened. So it could be your second act could be bigger deals. Your second act could be a second product that you're cross-selling to the same base. Your second act could be a, a, a second product or a new business that's selling to a totally different TAM, right? Um, but you have to figure out what that second act is particularly as your ROI of incremental sales and marketing stops dropping. So this all fits together, right? You go from evangelical to value-based selling. You push that as far as you can. You measure the ROI. At some point, the ROI starts dropping in terms of marginal ROI. Then you get your second act and then hopefully growth keeps going. That's a great trajectory to be on. I want to double down on the first thing you said about value-based selling when you get to around 10 million ARR. I actually think for a lot of companies in this macro environment, that need is coming much sooner because every other company needs to really justify spend and procurement is getting involved in decisions that they used to not be involved in. So, you know, I have a lot of founders actually who are thinking through how to pitch ROI. If you had one tip to give to founder about how to demonstrate ROI, how to pitch it, what would you say? One macro tip, which is then maybe a couple tactics underneath that. So the macro tip is most ROI models, nobody trusts them. (laughs) So, So don't just do a generic ROI model. And so I think the things that are important in ROI model, number one is it has to be value levers that are relevant to the customer right now. So again, today your ROI should all be about cost savings or efficiency, just to make it really simple. Like that's as we record this in late 2022, it should be about cost savings efficiency. And we have a CFO, Alka, who you remember very well. And Alka, like at the end of the day, the thing she cares about is cost savings efficiency. So that's how you have to position it. So the value lever should be tied to something people value. Number two, um, you want to, I think a mix of very tangible and aspirational that are broken out. And so the way the, the way to think about this is, there should be some parts of the ROI model that are so obvious that nobody's going to debate it. And then some parts that are aspirational that are kind of the upside. So let's use Gainsight as an example. Gainsight is going to drive massive efficiency. It's also going to reduce churn. Great. Awesome. So the efficiency is you don't have to hire two, two more CSMs next year. You're just going to use Gainsight instead. Okay, great. That's believable. That's like, okay, great. Like you're signing up. not, And then it's going to reduce churn by three or four points. Well, I don't know if it will or not, but at a minimum, we've paid for it with the, like the savings of the headcount, right? And so that's the idea of like, give them something that's super believable and something that's aspirational and break them out. Don't just say it's $10 million and it's generic and hand-waving. And then finally, have some examples and some data. Like this is a cool thing very recently we've been looking at, which is um, there's an industry association in our nerdy space called TSIA, which Allison remembers well. And they they do a study on ratios of like accounts per CSM, Okay. And then we actually looked in our data of in our system, because we're big enough that we have a lot of customers and accounts per CSM for Gainsight customers. Turns out Gainsight customers have way more accounts per CSM than the industry average. So now you can go to the CFO and be like, you care about efficiency. Here's the efficiency value proposition ROI. And here's proof points in terms of like other Gainsight customers or whatever. Nick, that's a great note to end on. I'm sure people are taking a lot of notes as they listen <laughs> to you. Thank you so much for having the conversation with me today. And, and most of all, it's just fun to have you on. 
So thanks so much. Everyone listening, you're lucky to learn from Allison because I got to learn from Allison for six years and you're lucky to keep listening to this podcast. Thanks, Nick. <laughs>